You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello and welcome to episode number six of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney. I'd like to thank everybody for checking out last week's episode with my friend Eddie from Taking Back Sunday. And thank you very much for checking out the past episodes as well. Uh, I'd like to thank my friends in the Philippines and New Zealand and Singapore for checking out the show. I'm kind of running running a, a tally of all the different countries that are checking out the show. So it's, it's really cool when we get a new country. We've got three new countries this time. So uh, thank you very much. Um, I would like to address that I've been getting some emails from people wanting to sponsor a show or run some ads on the show. Uh, I wasn't really prepared for that, but I'm, I'm into it. So uh, this show does cost some money to keep going as far as, you know, hosting the, the actual audio files and whatnot. And I had to buy some equipment. So if, if you would like to help me keep the lights on, you'd like to sponsor a show or, uh, you know, advertise a product that I feel I want to advertise, <laughs> hit me up at tototpodcast at gmail.com, uh, or you can hit me up at any of the social media platforms at tototpodcast. So this week on the show, episode six, I get to have a conversation with a, a very, very special person to me, um, a big influence uh, as far as music goes. I get to talk to Kira Rossler, ex-bass player for Black Flag. Uh, Black Flag was a big deal for me. They're one of my bands that I just like probably top five to seven bands. <laughs> I like a lot of bands, so it's hard for me to pick. But uh, the work ethic of Black Flag... Um, just everything the the like ferocity of black flag the intensity like they're just they're one of those bands and uh they kind of blazed a trail for bands after after them as far as DIY touring and uh just kind of doing it yourself you know like putting out your own records and and just doing everything so i'm very very honored to have had this chance to speak with Kira and she was great. Uh, we had such a good time, or at least I know I had a good time speaking with her. I hope that uh, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> but uh, so here it is. I won't say any more stuff. I'll get right into it. Uh, thank you guys for coming back, letting me be a part of your life. Uh, this thing is a lot of fun, and I cannot wait for you to hear this. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Kira Rossler of Black Flat. Hey, Kira, what's going on? Hello there. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a, it's nice to speak with you. Uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, it's an honor to be on your show, young man. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm not that young. <laughs> How I, old are you? I am 39. I will be 40 in October. So. Well, I will be 57 in June, just to keep it honest. 57 years young, I will say. We'll see about that. We'll see how far I get. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, this is that one time on tour. We talk about being on the road, but we also talk about you know everything else. So I just want to, I kind of want to go back to 
one thing that I saw when I was researching you a little bit that I didn't know prior was uh, that we kind of share something. You you spent some time growing up in the Caribbean. Is that true? That's absolutely true. When I was eight years old uh, till 11. Yeah, that, that's awesome. My wife and I and my son, right after my son was born a few years ago, uh, I took a job in Montego Bay, Jamaica, and we were there for a while. And it was it was quite a quite a change. <laughs> yeah, I was in Curacao, which is uh, off the coast of Venezuela, Dutch island run, you know, Dutch government, uh, Dutch schools. Um, one a wonderful experience for a kid, you know, to just uh, experience a different culture because I think uh, Americans especially just aren't exposed to other cultures. So, so we have a sort of skewed idea of the importance of our culture. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's like a, there's some kind of percentage that I've seen that only 12% of Americans have passports. And I think that needs to go up quite a bit. (laughs) Well, or something or, or willingness to, you know, open your eyes and ears to the rest of the world. Anyway, I I think that it, that really affected me as a kid. And, And I think as a kid, you're much more able to absorb a language or a culture or an idea. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I think it it does broaden your horizons. I mean, even just to, you know, to go on vacation somewhere, but to actually live somewhere and kind of immerse yourself in the culture, which when I was in Jamaica, I'd been there before, like on vacation with my parents and whatnot, but being there and actually living there and driving on the other side of the road and, and just doing all the things and meeting all the people, it really does kind of change your worldview. And I really, I really like that about travel and especially living somewhere different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, vacationing is a completely different thing. Yeah, I've always, uh, I've, I've been to close to 60 countries. I mean, that's through playing music and doing other things. But uh, I always try to not be a quote unquote tourist. I try to be a traveler. <laughs> yeah. Because I like to, you know, you know, I've even been on cruise ships before where we'll get to the port and I, I freaked my mother out because we were in uh, Cozumel, Mexico. And she said, well, what are we going to do? I said, we're just going to get a taxi and go see what we're going to do. And she was a little scared, but I think we had a much better experience because we weren't just, you know, going to the whatever the cruise ship told us to go do. We actually left the terminal and went out and explored. So All right. I think it's really great when, when people can do that. But uh, so that was just something I was I was very interested in because not a lot of people have lived in the Caribbean and it's something that we share. So thank you very much for telling me about that. Sure. So um, one thing I'm very interested in, uh, I've, I've always been a huge fan of kind of the, the early, the, like the eighties punk hardcore movement with, you know, the DIY tour circuit and everything, especially SST records and black flag and different bands. How was it for you? And I'm sure you've probably spoken this at length in other interviews, but how was it for you being, you know, a female and, and kind of a male dominated genre, a male dominated kind of scene. Was that, did you find it to be, I mean, and you might not have even thought about it at the time, but did it feel kind of different to you or did you feel like you were kind of carrying the torch a little bit or am I totally off? Well, in a way, yes, you're totally off because in the, in the late seventies, early 80s the punk rock scene in hollywood stuff was you know lots of women involved in early punk rock get women in bands you know bass players singers you know plenty of i swear the early fanzines that women were on the cover they were setting the fashion trends you know and and um that they were famous like just for being like 
cool looking and cool, you know. So there was always this sense of a female presence to me. So so that's one factor. The other is I'm a total tomboy, so I don't feel that female <laughs> all the time. And, you know, in the sense that I was always a little more comfortable hanging with the guys, playing football, you know, tossing around the football, you know, whatever. So it was never a girly girl ever in my life. So... Uh, so with those two things in mind, uh, get it going on tour. Well, when I, I mean, when I joined Black Flag, they were my favorite band. Wow. And uh, one of the reasons they were my favorite band is because they were so all in. In the yeah. set, they were traveling. They were, you know, giving it, you know, sort of 10,000% where a lot of bands were just, you know, hanging around L.A., you know, playing and working jobs or whatever, you know, which is fine, but they stood out that way, you know. So uh, the, when the opportunity came for me to join, that was pretty special. So I was more focused, I'll just say, in terms of, you know, being a good band member, whatever that meant. And of course that meant touring and I understood that meant touring. Um, so there was never any sort of, how is that going to work with me, you know, being different than them, having different body parts or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? That was yeah. that mechanical aspect. Just didn't... Now, of course there were things about it that made it complicated, but that wasn't a consideration going in for sure. Was was that your, uh, when you joined Black Flag, like, can you kind of take me back to, I mean, I know Chuck was the bass player originally. Um, mm -hmm. Can you take me back to my research that I was doing on you? You were, you're going to UCLA, correct? Yes, I was, uh, I was three years into my uh, UCLA degree and um, I was playing with Dez and another guy in a band called DC three. And I was, it was a, it was a power trio and we were practicing at the same place as black flag was. And, um, and actually Henry called me and he said, you know, Chuck's gone. Do you want to jam with Bill and Greg? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, stay, you know, stay after practice. Cause we had a schedule, you know, because we practiced and they practiced. So we all had a schedule just to set. Uh, so I stayed after, and uh, and it seemed very <laughs> seemed very much like they didn't know that this was planned because <laughs> I was like, "So you want a jam?" And I'm like, "Oh, okay." So yeah. Henry kind of springed it on him a little bit. <laughs> I, it seemed like it. Now, I mean, they had seen me play in other bands in LA. I mean, it was not like we, they didn't know who I was or that I was a good bass player or anything it's not like you know they knew i played with Des, you know so there was no mystery about me but i'm not sure whether it wasn't henry's idea to give it a try um it seemed like it when they seemed surprised now maybe they had just well we didn't know we were doing it tonight or whatever but anyway so i jammed with them for a long time so it felt like a long time because i'd already played and I, it kicked my butt <laughs> And uh, by at the end of it, they said, well, do you want to join Black Flag? And I said, yeah, but I, I want to finish college. We talked a little bit about, you know, how we were going to tour and, and, you know, I was going to take quarters off, but, you know, sort of still keep plugging away at my 
degree. So uh, that night it was all settled. Well, that that's really cool. It's pretty cool to get to join your favorite band. I mean, so yeah. you, you'd actually been like seeing them at gigs in California. And did sure, you... since the early days, I saw Keith, I saw Ron, I saw, yeah, I saw, uh, I was a big fan of theirs. I wouldn't say they were my favorite, the, the favorite gig of, that I saw was with Henry and Biscuits, uh, you know, the five piece with Dez. That was the first time I went like, holy shit you know this is is way cool although uh, bill is now my favorite drummer (laughs) at that time that lineup was pretty amazing were you uh kind of immersed in the scene then as well i know you were playing in bands i mean did you see the descendants when bill was playing with them i mean were there other bands that? uh, yeah i mean from when i was 16 i was a punk rocker that's great so so by the time we're talking about of me seeing Henry and them at the whiskey with biscuits, I'm in my twenties. I've been playing around LA for years, seeing bands, you know, going to school. I mean, I was in high school. I was in 11th grade. So, uh, seeing bands, going to school, playing, you know, practicing, basically just go to school in the morning, practice in the afternoon, go to see gigs at night every day. It sounds like a pretty good life. <laughs> it, you know, it, yes, there, it has its drawbacks, but yeah. yes, um, it did. I, I, uh, I did, I still was careful to do well in school because I had to deal with my mom and, and she didn't live, we didn't live with my mom. So I had, uh, it made things complicated because I could do things like drink and stay out late which uh you know maybe other 16 year olds wouldn't have been able to pull off but I went to school I got good grades and and the focus on playing not just going to gigs but you know practicing and playing and stuff kept me somewhat focused too what was uh was bass your first choice I mean uh what got you into actually wanting to learn an instrument was it pretty early on in your life I started piano at six. I played classical piano from six to 11. I quit because I couldn't keep up with my brother who's three years older than me. And then um, three years later when I was 14, he was in a prog rock band and his bass player quit. Okay. And so the singer started playing bass as well. But I borrowed a bass and started practicing every day, like a lot of hours, like six hours a day, trying to get good enough to be in my brother's prog rock band. What was the name so of that, what was the name of the prog rock band your brother had? Uh, Arc Squared. Okay. A R C Arc Squared. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so yeah, I practiced really hard, and then you know, by the time I, uh, I was sixteen, he was had gotten out of prog rock and was into punk rock, and I didn't have to be as good, and so it all worked out, and we had our first punk rock band when I was sixteen. Well, I think. Do you think that maybe uh, trying to achieve, you know, being in the prog rock band? I'm sure you were probably going through your scales and and maybe doing some theory and whatnot. Do you think that made you a better bass player down the road? Absolutely. Well, all of it. I studied jazz with a teacher. I uh, studied classical. I uh, 
But as you say, when I was practicing those six hours alone in my room, I was doing everything. I was playing along to the prog rock music. I was also doing scales and theory and reading, sight reading and everything. I once tried out for the Mystic Nights of Oingo Boingo that turned into <laughs> Oingo Boingo, which did all sight reading. Um, and But they wanted me to wear the stupid outfit, which they wore. <laughs> anyway, long story. But, um, but yeah, of course. I mean... To my mind, and this is, you know, hindsight, one of the important things about an instrument like bass is that it's physically pretty demanding. So so if you have to kind of push past the part where your hands don't want to do that, they don't want to do what you're telling it to. So that uh, so there's sort of the physical part and then there's the mental part of knowing what the hell you want to do. And the mental part came more slowly. The physical part came more quickly because I just applied a lot of hours to it. I, I teach guitar and bass and actually just started teaching ukulele. That's kind of my job that I have now. It's a full-time gig. And I have way less bass students, but I do have some bass students. And the consensus that I've heard from these kids that are taking bass lessons from me is that, well, I wanted to do bass because it's easier. And then they come to me and I'm like, well, it's not easier at all. You can, you can think of it that way, but it's, there's so much involved if you actually want to, you know, do a good job on the bass and these kids come in and they're not ready for all the scales and all the theory and all the stuff that I give them. And then they, I, I think it makes you better though. And I think that's a really cool way to look at it is, you know, you, you actually put all that time in and actually, you know, honed your craft. And I'm sure that then being in the punk, you know, hardcore world, you were probably kind of an enigma because I, I mean, I know even now the guys that I meet that are amazing musicians, they don't really know what they're doing. No, not necessarily from a, from a theory point of view. You're right. Yeah. I, I had some students. I, I struggle with keeping students cause my schedule is erratic, but, um, but I got into doing group lessons and making them kind of play off each other, which I found helped them understand why, you know, why do I have to sort of keep time in my head, you know, because I have to come in on the third beat or whatever. So I'm like making them count and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and that was a big sort of revelation in teaching. It's like, I don't even get that much into theory, but I do get into, you know, you're not playing alone in a room. So, you, you know, if you want to play with someone else, you have to figure out how you're, how, how is that communication happening? That's you, what rules are we playing by here? Definitely. Yeah. I run into the same issue. I've a lot of my guitar students, they like, you know, we'll just sit in the room and play for hours, but my bass students, I think they tend to, if, if some of them play along to YouTube videos or whatever, but yeah, I do think that if you can get some kids or some even just, you know, adults that are learning instruments in the same room together, I think it does really help that kind of human interaction as well. I and mean, minus the theory, just to kind of feel it and kind of develop your ear. You know, I, I really yeah. agree with you there. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to black flag. Okay. <laughs> so you joined black flag. Um, did you right away start recording or was there touring involved? What was kind of the next step? Okay, so we had, uh, they had uh, the My War tour schedule. They had already recorded the record My War, but they had a tour scheduled. And um, 
they were in the middle of a lawsuit against Unicorn Records, so they'd just gotten that sort of the injunction lifted so they could start recording. So there was a lot of recording planned as well. So, um, so like six days into playing with them, I hurt my hand, and uh, and the doctor said, you know, don't play for six weeks. And I was like, yeah, I'm a girl, and I just joined Black Flag. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, I can't do that. You don't know? really have the option to do that, right? I just didn't feel, you know, I, again, I'm a tomboy. Maybe if I was, you know, someone else, but I'm like, I can't do that. And they would have, they were totally supportive. They were like, look, sure, you got to take care of yourself. You got to do what you got to do. And I was like, now, uh, now, uh, four days later, I was back at practice and my hands never been the same. But, really? uh, but we took off on, on the My Award tour. Um, you know, a few like weeks later, which was my first tour with them. Was that your first kind of tour experience ever? Like being out of California, like actually playing, like, you know, being playing, in a band? Yes. I had gone, uh, I had gone on a, a excursion with the screamers as a roadie, uh, but playing. Yes. How, how was that? Was it a kind of like, a shock to the system. I mean, was it, cause I know I've, I've read, I've read all Henry's books and I've, I've kind of the lore of black flag, like the touring was, you know, it was pretty brutal at times. And I mean, you know, Dukowski booking dates, not really looking at a map, I think. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, look, the first tour, sure. It was, it was an eye opener. was, again, I'm also in the shut up, you're a girl mode, you know, but, yeah. uh, but so the first, Tour we had, they had this great idea. They were gonna have this little school bus that we drove, and it lasted like one and a half states. Yeah. So we're in the middle of fucking nowhere, and we have a gig to get to, and we and our vehicle breaks down. And Dukowski has, who's booking, as you said, who's booking, uh, drives out in his little van and loads up all our gear and us in his van. Now we've taken like a school little mini school bus worth of shit and put it into <laughs> a van and he drives us to Oklahoma City where we were supposed to have been, you know, hours ago and people are waiting, but they're pissed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we get there and then, you know, so he keeps driving for a while, but you know, so so that turns a fiasco where you know we were on top of each other you know very tight quarters um no air conditioning you know bloody 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 blah <laughs> yeah uh, so aside from the fact that i was physically just absolutely not up to it i mean every day i was in tears with my hands in an ice bucket at the end of the show wow there's this picture that i've seen since then and i and the other guys are standing around me and I'm like on the ground with hanging my head. And it looks like we're in a fight or something, <laughs> but it's really no doubt that they're waiting for me to pull, collect myself to go do a, a encore or something, you know, <laughs> because I was just always in agony on my right hand because I'm an idiot. I'm left-handed and I play right-handed. So I have my weak hand on the hand that you, once you play with a drummer, you know, you should have your strong hand. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that was my, I mean, I was pretty much my main focus was, you know, surviving the gigs. I was blowing out speakers all the time because I couldn't hear myself. So I would hit harder, you know, so it was this cycle yeah. of, I would hurt my hands because I was hitting 
couldn't hear myself because Greg had as much power as me and he's a guitar player, so he didn't need as much power as me. So I'm blowing out speakers, where I'm going to replace speakers. I mean, you know, stuff like that. It's like, it's like the mechanics. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not necessarily engaged in enjoying the gig with the crowd or, or, you know, I mean, I'm I'm looking at Bill mostly to just make sure that I'm playing hard and playing right, you know, and that was all that tour was about. And so after that tour, um, did you guys do any like international stuff? Because I mean, I know that, you know, they they went to the UK a lot. They did a lot in Europe. Did you ever go over there with them? Yes. Yeah, so um, I can't remember what order. I think we recorded Slip It In before before we went to Europe or we went to Europe and then we recorded slip it in but um we went to England Holland Germany and Sweden okay on that to- that uh part of Europe. We were supposed to go with Husker Du. Husker Du flakes out. Everybody's fucking pissed as hell. <laughs> Henry has long hair. You know, I'm I have the shortest hair in the band. So we have a double whammy. You know, we've got, you know, these long haired hippie dudes and we don't have Husker Du. We have uh you know our roadies band opening for us, you know. Was that was like, that the Nig Heist? Yeah. Okay. We have Nig Heist. Okay. And so it was, it, that was a little bit of a rough tour. We, you know, there was a certain amount of pushback on the, the slow songs, the long hair, the, the no who's could do. It was sort of a, it was sort of a triple thing. Were there, were there any like crazy things that happened? I mean, I, like I said, I've, I've, you know, read some of the Henry's books and whatnot about, how, I mean, even the, in the early days, a lot of like the UK guys would like, you know, throw beer or they just tan with their backs to you and flip you off, like stuff like that. Did anything like bad happen on that tour because of all the extenuating well, circumstances? Chairs, it was like, okay, folding chairs in Manchester. And like, uh, then it was in, in Glasgow, they were just spitting at us. Wow. So like, I was turning my back to my amp. Greg was behind his amp and Henry just stood up front and took it. <laughs> and then at the end, we're like loading out and, and you know, thinking, fuck these guys, we're not coming back here. And they're all like, yeah, great show. You know, and we're like, well, why were you fucking spitting on us? And it's like, yeah, that's what we do. We like the show. And we're like, yeah, see you in 10 years. Asshole. <laughs> Maybe you'll be over it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I had a beer thrown at me one time at a gig, and the guy's like, punk rock. I'm like, I'm not that punk rock, man. This guitar is expensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had to hit people with my bass. I, I I, was confronted in England a couple times, like, you bring bombs to our country. You know, like me and Ron Reagan were, like, making deals with Margaret yeah. Thatcher to bring bombs to your country. <laughs> That's crazy. So, you know. So there was, you know, political stuff. There's like, you're not punk enough stuff, you know, and you're playing, we were playing side two of my war, like the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) And if anyone doesn't know, side two of my wars has three long dirge songs. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. It's like not for the people who want it like fast. Was were the crowds like that in the other European countries, or was that kind of relegated to the UK? 
Like, people were like that in America. People were really? like that everywhere. You wow. know, yeah. They hate, they all, and they all thought it was me. Well, a lot of them thought it was me because the transition, the first tour with my war songs was the one with me in it. So somehow well, they know, thought it was like your, your influence on the band. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I wrote those songs. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, like I said, in, in everything that I've ever read or listened to, Greg was kind of, I mean, I mean, he's a hardworking guy, but he was kind of in control, correct? Well, the songwriter usually, right, it controls the band, yeah. right? I mean, usually a band is rarely a true democracy. You know, there's usually a, song, a, a songwriter and he's usually someone in control. Now, I believe, and I don't know this for sure, that when Dukowski was in, who was also writing some songs, that they had more of a partnership and that that even may be why Greg didn't want to play with him anymore because yeah. he wanted more control. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, Greg wanted, you know, pretty much people who would, you know, play the songs the way he wanted them played and and had a, had a, good, a big say in, like, when we would tour and how much we would tour, what we would record and, and what songs we would record of his slip it in record you know look, we're going to record these these songs um and then i was back you know when we got back off tour then i went back to school and inevitably you know i would have a, a midterm like the morning after a two-day lockout to record two records you know so <laughs> bill and i would play until we dropped and then i would be sitting there studying for math midterms because i studied math in college <laughs> so That's it was crazy yeah, I mean, it was, uh, and it was nonstop. We were either home rec- practicing and recording or we were touring. Well, I think that just compounds, like, you know, the folklore around Black Flag kind of, like you said, being all or nothing, kind of like the hardest working band ever, <laughs> in my eyes anyway, just what you're well, saying. Well, it's about- funny because I was talking to my brother last night who who has glamorized it uh, a bit because... Uh, Anyway, we were having this weird conversation, and he and and one of the ways he's glamorized it, which I don't know if I can see this or not, but he feels, and maybe it's true, that the touring circuit in the U.S. was basically established by Black Flag. In other words, tying together all the college towns and yeah. the place, the gigs, and the promoters, and all of that. And I would say it's true that there were, you know by bringing Black Flag into all these towns and setting up arrangements with all these promoters and stuff, you know, something was started. I will say that, you know, being a, a, a little bit younger, like kind of a generation or two, you know, DIY punk band kind of thing from you guys, that when I was younger, just getting out of high school and we did my the first tour my band did, I booked it completely with like phone cards and using, you know, I had a book your own fucking life is what it was called, like a fanzine. And it had all of the different scenes from across America and you could call bands, you could call promoters, just call people that would let you play at their house or sleep at their, at their house. And I think that was kind of, you guys were the precursor to that. And before, I mean, that's exactly what you just said is true. I think the black flag and certain bands of that era that did that, you know, you know, the dead boys or anybody like the bands that actually went out and toured and kind of made I'm it sorry, possible. The dead boys, the dead plays with boys would play like four or five major cities. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, we played, for example, three gigs in Louisiana. Okay. 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 That's pretty I'm crazy. Just saying, 
we would do, you know, months and months on the road in the U.S. So the smaller towns where a lot of people weren't going, the college towns, yeah. you know, Omaha, Nebraska, good, great college town. A lot of people aren't going there. Yeah, know? totally. Yeah. So you, so that stuff, you know, and I think that was different. And I think that was a way to, to spread if you, if you want to say this lore, which I don't didn't really use the word you did <laughs> yeah. but i think that that college connection happens and it was the college towns that were always more accepting of us the big cities were hard la was impossible were, there was a lot was there like a lot of glam metal and stuff going on at that point and and did any of those fans like just kind of not get it or you guys probably weren't trying to get those fans. Correct. But that was all kind of happening at the same time in Hollywood, in LA. Correct. Uh, it's it, it's not, wasn't in LA. The problem was that we were a little too big for clubs, but we were not nearly big enough to play, you know, arenas. Yeah. The famous, you know, uh, the famous riot when we played with the Ramones was because we played too small of a place. It wasn't a riot. There were just 5,000 people outside that couldn't get in and the cops got upset. Yeah. That's you know, crazy. which is most, uh, most LA riots is because there's people hanging around outside and the cops don't like it. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. It's not because like, Oh, you guys are being so bad. It's because kids hanging around outside is a little bit, scary yeah yeah definitely did you have a lot of run-ins with the police like during the band's run when you were in the band yes uh, <laughs> i would say that i mostly we were lucky while i was in them they had more before and after as i understand i seem to have been a, a bit of a good luck charm that way <laughs> that's good <laughs> i have that all-american girl look oh know? yeah um even then you know i mean maybe a little bit taken back when I had my purple hair and lace on but you know I did one tour where I wore all like basically all the did the girly girl thing completely I wore heels I wore lace I did purple hair and people were like are you the same Kira <laughs> that's awesome so uh you guys were on the road you went to Europe you did all this stuff uh you recorded slip it in um what like eventually led to kind of the the ending of your relationship with the band or the band itself i guess all right so yeah we did we recorded slip it in and family man and you know a lot more stuff yeah, yeah. uh and toured a lot more yeah yeah <laughs> and then, uh, okay so we did a big four-month tour in 85 huge u.s tour like that was the one where we hit we hit every small town we hit everything it was it was in a lot of ways you could say it was just too long you okay. know because because of course you know as you well know a band is like a marriage of four or five people you know yeah. and and so uh relationships can be strained especially if they're under stress like a situation like that so um so, I mean, in, in, a, in a way, I have no idea what happened because I just found out when I called home, like we were almost back to L.A. and I called home and I found out that they were pl planning their next tour and it was supposed to be my last quarter at UCLA. So I knew that they were planning to fire me because they were planning a tour. Um, and so I did... I think two more gigs. I we played LA, we played San Diego, and then 
And then, to, sure enough, as I, I knew was coming, they fired me, uh, and and that was that. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, Greg has fired so many people that so I, I don't think it was particularly complicated. I, I'll tell you this: I've been kicked out of a lot of bands, and and rarely has it been because of my bass playing. Okay. So take that for what you will. I mean, I think that the truth is that, you know, personalities are, you know, I've learned a lot about my personality and I've grown and I've changed and, and I'm sure I, I, you know, was unpleasant at times, especially on four hours of sleep every night, you know, and, and I'm sure they were frustrated and, and tired and, and, you know, saw everything through their glasses. I mean, I mean, Henry's written some terrible things about me and he's also come back and said basically that he took them all back. So it's, and we, we, I think, so I think that you can have that kind of experience where in that context, in that moment, it seemed completely impossible. And then now looking back at it, it's like, yeah, I can't say why that was so impossible. Do you still like kind of are you civil with the with the guys? Do you speak to any of them anymore? Oh, I'm civil with uh Bill and Henry. <laughs> Not so much the other guys. <laughs> Greg, well, uh Greg, you know, Greg is a little more complicated of a personality. Let's yeah. just leave it at that, you okay. know. Yeah. So no, I have not been in touch with him and and that relationship is a lot more complicated. Okay. Well, I know that you did uh you did a band called Dose with Mike Watt who you were actually married to for a while. Are you guys doing anything with that currently or is that kind of a a project that's been put so, on the back uh, burner? Dose was a Dose was a 30-year band. Well, yeah, yeah, way. definitely, definitely. <laughs> so, so it was a it was a very big long band and it isn't hasn't officially disbanded, but um it, we have not uh been doing anything mike is a very busy guy i um i am not i just don't have the i don't have the burning desire to play live yeah i will always play bass i've been i always tell people i've been a bass player longer than i've been a woman of course i'm gonna play bass yeah definitely you know and I play bass in my room and I record stuff and I have a virtual band with people who I send files around and we build songs and, and you know, I play at 6.30 in the morning, know that no one else wants to play at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, you know, and I and I work on stuff with my brother who's here who has a little studio and, and you know, so so stuff happens. But I, I I won't join anyone's band. And as to what and me and Mike, that's a that's a complicated relationship too. And okay. um, I'd like to, you know, I still we wanted to record more. I I won't. Uh, I haven't totally eliminated the possibility of recording more. I, I don't think playing live will happen. Okay. There's an uh, there's an one other project that I could see doing stuff with, who's a guy who's a stand up bass player, also a two bass band called Awkward, uh, which is a really cool project that I did. We did like a demo. We haven't done a lot since, but it's something that I could see. We've played live a couple times. Okay. 
Well, that's that's great. So what you're doing now uh, for a career, I mean, you've been doing it for a long time, actually. You're uh, you're working in film. You're doing dialogue editing, correct? Dialogue and ADR, yeah. Okay, cool. So are you, when you're doing that, I just had, I mean, a lot of people, you know, don't really understand the whole idea of recording audio for bands, let alone for film. Are you just at the computer kind of editing in post or are you actually at the studio while they're doing the ADR? Like what, what does it entail? If you don't mind me asking. So yeah, I work in post and what that means is by after the, all the shot stuff is shot on set then they it goes into the picture editor guy and he chops it all up and turns it into some sort of uh continuous piece of you know visual art and then i get it and it's all chopped up into you know all these different scenes and takes of dialogue and i have to see what i can you know do to make it sound like a cohesive bit of dialogue from all these takes and and smooth it out and and fix problems and then what can't be fixed or what they want to add we go into the ADR studio and record we also record things like background voices of the people talking in the background or whatever someone talking on the phone an uh, operator on the phone or whatever so uh, we do additive voices as well as replacement voices in the studio. And then I'll be there with the director and the actor, you know, helping make that a success. And then I'll edit that, combine it. And then we take it to a a big mixing stage, which is as big as a theater, right? With a big mixing console. And we combine the dialogue and the music and the Foley and the sound effects together and have the director there telling us, to change things and stuff and we create the final product that's that's a long process that sounds that sounds really cool me like i'm a i'm a recording engineer also and when i found out you know i was doing my research and i found all that out about you that was very very intriguing and i really wanted to ask you also that uh i you won an oscar your team was an oscar winning team for mad max fury road how was Mm -hmm. that i mean was that just like you know, not a lot of people win Oscars. That's got to be a pretty cool feeling, right? Um, look, it's obviously I don't have the hardware. It's not my Oscar, but um, the team, it was an amazing team. And I got to go to Sydney, Australia and work with the team with George Miller, who's directed the the first Mad Max has wow. directed. So he directed the first three and this one. He also directed Babe the babes and you know so he has this wide range he also was a doctor for 39 years he's just an incredible individual at 72 years doing mad max fury road and has the energy of a young man and just the vision of a fucking lunatic (laughs) And, and it was just you know he was a pleasure it was a pleasure to bust my ass to try to help make it uh make it really special and to visit Sydney, which I would probably never get to go to otherwise. And then we came back here and mixed with, you know, we had top notch mixers and, uh, and the mixers won as well as the sound team, the editorial team won. So there's two Oscars, uh, for the team. And, and it is, it's, you know, it was funny that it, the, uh, rumor got spread that I want to know. 
award and I kind of clever actually Henry contacted me he said I heard you won an Oscar I'm like no <laughs> I didn't get an Oscar but you know I mean I can't unless I'm a sound supervisor which I'm not uh I can't win an Oscar I do have two Emmys which I won because in TV the whole team does get the hardware okay so I have won two Emmys for uh Game of Thrones which I worked on season two and John Adams wow. uh, miniseries. And I'm uh, just finishing a f- film, which I think is a very possible contender. Okay. Is there anything else you can tell me about the film or is it kind of under wraps right now? Well, it, the, no, the, the film is, uh, there was recently articles out about the trailer and how uh, it, the trailer, I guess, played at Comic-Con and, People have just been saying, oh, my God, this is going to be huge and and Academy Award winning. It is the remake of A Star is Born. Wow. Okay. I'll have to check that out as soon as I get off the phone with you. <laughs> yeah, I would take a look at what. The, yeah. That, I, the, anyway, there's a lot of hype around it. You never know with these things. I think it's really great. You never know. I, it's not like I have all my hopes up, but I think it's an excellent film. It has really talented people in it. It was a really difficult project, so I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it. Um, So we'll see. And then now I'm working on a more fun project, and I am – and look, I'm a freelance person, so just the fact that I'm, like, staying working is – you know, pretty much means my career is going as well as it can go. So I have no complaints. The only complaint is that when I got into this, I thought, hey, I'll have breaks between jobs. I can do music, <laughs> you know. And the truth is, is when you get good enough, it's harder to get breaks unless you turn down really exciting opportunities, which is hard to do. So, so I haven't been getting the breaks I was hoping for. Maybe towards the end of this year, I'll get... Uh, a bit of a break and get to, to put a little more time. I put time into music very early in the morning, like I said, because I'm fresh, because by the end of a long day on Pro Tools, uh, working on sound, I just don't, I just don't have it in me to sit down in front of Pro Tools and do music or just even to just start making sound. I just want quiet, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I have uh, a two-year-old son and a seven-month-old daughter, and I, mm. I I used to sleep. Oh, my God. I used to sleep, like, all day, and I'd be up all night. I'd get up go to work because I taught guitar. And But now that, you know, I have kids, I'm up at, you know, fairly early in the morning. So my, my whole schedule has shifted. So when you told me I could do the morning on Monday, I was like, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I get up at 5, walk my dogs. You know, maybe a little bass, and then I'm at work by eight, and you know, and I try to get out of here before seven o'clock at night. Yeah. And uh, you know, and then maybe there's time for dinner and more dog walking before <laughs> you know I I'm too tired to do anything at 57 years old. Remember? Uh, yeah, so, yeah. So look, it's a I'm very I, I have no complaints. I have no complaints. I just I I just thought I'd be able to manage a little more time off, but these are quality problems. Very quality problems. And I think that's, uh, I've had you on the phone now for almost 45 minutes and I try to keep these things around there and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I think, uh, we could leave it there. And I just want to tell you that it's been wonderful speaking with you and, and hearing about your life and everything that you've got going on. Is there anything that you would like to promote maybe, or 
Well, I definitely think you should check out A Star is Born when it comes out in October, I believe. Uh, um, I uh, I don't. I don't have anything. Uh, I Unfortunately, listening to music is something also that kind of suffers in my life because of all of the sound work I do. I don't listen to as much music as I might because my ears are just, you know, not I, I listen to podcasts a little bit more because I can listen to them kind of quietly and the same and, here I listen to podcasts pretty much religiously now on my commutes places because I'm around so I really love like you know true crime podcasts yeah. and stuff like that I'm like obsessed I'm obsessed with murder murders murder mysteries dark horrible things uh it's where my funny bone is i can't explain it <laughs> i think that's pretty cool uh yeah so so that's me i'm i'm a really dark individual uh and um and no i don't have anything to promote i want to thank you for asking me and and make sure that if there's some other question you have that you ask Okay. Yeah, definitely. Like I, like I said, I'm, I'm fairly new to this. It's going pretty well and, and I'm, I'm honored to have you on the show. So I might've missed something, but, uh, maybe, uh, if I tell you what, if I have any questions, maybe we could do a part two at some point. Are you into that? Absolutely. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Well, Kira, I just want to tell you that it's been wonderful speaking with you and I I hope you have a great rest of the day. And, uh, and I wanted to ask you one question. What kind of dog yeah. do you have? I'm a big dog guy. I have three. Okay. I have three. I have, they're all mutts, but they all are off-white. One is like a poodle mix. One is like a Bichon Frise mix. And one is a terrier mix. Two boys, one girl, all 20 pounds and under. And, uh, yeah, a handful, but very sweet. What are, very what, sweet. what are their names, if you don't mind me asking? No problem. Uh, Jim is our senior male. Uh, He's the 20-pounder. Madison's the girl. Her nickname's Stinky. She's the terrier mix. And then Hank is the newcomer. Hank is the Bijan mix. Hank is Mr. Trouble. (laughs) And And if anyone will bite you, it'll be Hank. So since he's the one that will bite you, is can I assume that maybe he's he's named after Henry? <laughs> no, I thought, it's funny. I thought you were going to say that he's my favorite. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just, uh, I was no, taking actually, it full circle back to what we were talking. I about. knew people. I knew people would think that I named him after that, but no, the the rescue had given him the name Hayden, and it was so sort of preppy and awful. But I was sort of trying to keep. The, uh, you know, I was like, starts with the age, but a little more manly, more a little yeah. more like Jim, you know, Jim and Jim and huh, Jim and huh, and I came <laughs> up with Jim and Hank. I never called Henry Hank, so I never, I've never thought of him that way. So, so no, I, it's not, it's nothing on him. Okay, I just, I mean, you know, just full circle. I was trying to bring him back. I didn't think it was. I just thought I'd bring that up. But uh, I tell you, Kira, this has been great. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I don't know. This is this has been an honor for me. So thank you, and uh, I'll get a hold of you for part two at some time in the future. All right, please do. Have a great day. You have a great day too. Thanks. All right. Bye. And there it was, my conversation with Kira Rossler, ex-bassist for Black Flag. Uh, I had a really good time speaking with Kira. Uh, We even got to talk about her dogs a little bit there at the end. Uh, I don't think she was too happy with me because I thought that she named her dog after Henry Rollins. (laughs) So, But yeah, I had a really good time speaking with her. Um, 
And I'm just really, really excited for the future. So if you guys made it this far, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, please come back next week. Um, I don't have an interview set up as of now, but I have a couple of people that I know want to be on the show. So there will be a show next week. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be. I've got to narrow it down between a couple of people, but uh, there will be a new show. So look for that next week. Uh, like I said in the intro, um, I am you know accepting some, some ads, some sponsorships if you guys are into doing it. So if you have a band and you want to get a little bit of promo going, I'll play your song. I'll talk about your band camp, like whatever you want me to do tour dates just hit me up we'll come to an agreement on a, a nominal fee and uh we'll, we'll try to make it happen or if you have a product you'd like me to, to check out you know we'll we'll try to make that happen as well so uh i don't want this thing to get like too too much too many ads but you know it'd be nice to, to make a little something off this just so i don't have to keep putting money into it so uh so yeah <laughs> Sorry if you are bored by me talking about the business side of things, but you know, we'll see what happens. But, uh, so thank you once again for listening. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a song that, uh, is on black flags album, slip it in. It's called the bars. I picked this song because, uh, it starts out with Kira playing bass. And since Kira was the bass player, I kind of wanted to highlight something that, you know, showed what she was doing in the band. So, uh, here it is. I'm going to play it right now. It's by Black Flag. It's called The Bars with an intro by Miss Kira Rossler of Black Flag. So thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you guys next week on That One Time on Tour.
Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.